Chapter Five of El Dorado by Baroness Orsi. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in June two thousand and seven. Chapter Five, The Temple Prison. It was close on midnight when the two friends finally parted company outside the doors of the theatre. The night air struck with biting keenness against them when they emerged from the stuffy, overheated building, and both wrapped their caped cloaks tightly round their shoulders. Armand, more than ever now, was anxious to rid himself of de Batz. The Gascon's platitudes irritated him beyond the bounds of forbearance, and he wanted to be alone, so that he might think over the events of this night, the chief event being a little lady with an enchanting voice and the most fascinating brown eyes he had ever seen. Self-reproach, too, was fighting a fairly even fight with the excitement that had been called up by that same pair of brown eyes. Armand, for the past four or five hours, had acted in direct opposition to the earnest advice given to him by his chief. He had renewed one friendship which had been far better left in oblivion, and he had made an acquaintance which already was leading him along a path that he felt sure his comrade would disapprove. But the path was so profusely strewn with scented narcissi, that Armand's sensitive conscience was quickly lulled to rest by the intoxicating fragrance. Looking neither to right nor left, he made his way very quickly up the Rue Richelieu, toward the Montmartre quarter, where he lodged. De Batz stood and watched him for as long as the dim lights of the street-lamps illumined his slim, soberly clad figure. Then he turned on his heel, and walked off in the opposite direction. His florid, pock-marked face wore an air of contentment, not altogether unmixed with a kind of spiteful triumph. "'So, my pretty scarlet pimpernel,' he muttered between his closed lips, "'you wish to meddle in my affairs, to have for yourself and your friends the credit and glory of snatching the golden prize from the clutches of these murderous brutes. Well, we shall see. We shall see which is the wiliest—the French ferret or the English fox.' He walked deliberately away from the busy part of the town turning his back on the river, stepping out briskly straight before him, and swinging his gold-headed cane as he walked. The streets which he had to traverse were silent and deserted, save occasionally where a drinking or an eating-house had its swing-doors still inviting the open. From these places, as de Batz strode rapidly by, came the sounds of loud voices, rendered raucous by outdoor oratory, volleys of oaths hurled irreverently in the midst of impassioned speeches, interruptions from rowdy audiences that vied with the speaker in invectives and blasphemies, wordy warfares that ended in noisy vituperations, accusations hurled through the air heavy with tobacco-smoke, and the fumes of cheap wines and of raw spirits. De Batz took no heed of these as he passed, anxious only that the crowd of eating-house politicians did not, as often was its wont, turn out pell-mell into the street, and settle its quarrel by the weight of fists. He did not wish to be embroiled in a street-fight, which invariably ended in denunciations and arrests, and was glad when presently he had left the purlieus of the Palais-Royal behind him, and could strike on his left toward the lonely Faubourg du Temple. From the dim distance far away came at intervals the mournful sound of a roll of muffled drums, half veiled by the intervening hubbub of the busy night-life of the great city. It proceeded from the Place de la Révolution, where a company of the National Guard were on night-watch round the guillotine. The dull, intermittent notes of the drum came as a reminder to the free people of France that the watchdog of a vengeful revolution was alert night and day, never sleeping, ever wakeful, beating up game for the guillotine, as the new decree framed to-day by the government of the people had ordered that it should do. From time to time now the silence of this lonely street was broken by a sudden cry of terror, followed by the clash of arms, the inevitable volley of oaths, the call for help, the final moan of anguish. 
They were the ever-recurring brief tragedies which told of denunciations, of domiciliary search, of sudden arrests, of an agonizing desire for life and for freedom, for life under these same horrible conditions of brutality and of servitude, for freedom to breathe, if only a day or two longer, this air polluted by filth and by blood. De Batz, hardened to these scenes, paid no heed to them. He had heard it so often, that cry in the night, followed by death-like silence. It came from comfortable bourgeois homes, from squalid lodgings, or lonely cul-de-sac, wherever some hunted quarry was run to earth by the newly organized spies of the Committee of General Security. Five-and-thirty livres for every head that falls trunkless into the basket at the foot of the guillotine. Five-and-thirty pieces of silver, now as then, the price of innocent blood. Every cry in the night, every call for help, meant game for the guillotine and five-and-thirty livres in the hands of a Judas. And de Batz walked on unmoved by what he saw and heard, swinging his cane and looking satisfied. Now he struck into the Place de la Victoire, and looked on one of the open-air camps that had recently been established, where men, women, and children were working to provide arms and accoutrements for the Republican army that was fighting the whole of Europe. The people of France were up in arms against tyranny and on the open places of their mighty city they were encamped day and night, forging those arms which were destined to make them free, and in the meantime were bending under a yoke of tyranny more complete, more grinding and absolute, than any that the most despotic kings had ever dared to inflict. Here by the light of resin torches, at this late hour of the night, raw lads were being drilled into soldiers, half naked under the cutting blast of the north wind, their knees shaking under them, their arms and legs blue with cold, their stomachs empty, and their teeth chattering with fear. Women were sewing shirts for the great improvised army, with eyes straining to see the stitches by the flickering light of the torches, their throats parched with the continual inhaling of smoke-laden air. Even children, with weak, clumsy little fingers, were picking rags to be woven into cloth again, all— all these slaves were working far into the night, tired, hungry, and cold, but working unceasingly, as the country had demanded it. The people of France in arms against tyranny. The people of France had to set to work to make arms, to clothe the soldiers, the defenders of the people's liberty. And from this crowd of people, men, women, and children, there came scarcely a sound, save raucous whispers, a moan or a sigh quickly suppressed. A grim silence reigned in this thickly peopled camp. Only the crackling of the torches broke that silence now and then, or the flapping of canvas in the wintry gale. They worked on, sullen, desperate, and starving, with no hope of payment save the miserable rations wrung from poor tradespeople or miserable farmers, as wretched, as oppressed as themselves. No hope of payment, only fear of punishment, for that was ever present. The people of France, in arms against tyranny, were not allowed to forget that grim taskmaster with the two great hands stretched upwards, holding the knife which descended mercilessly, indiscriminately, on necks that did not bend willingly to the task. A grim look of gratified desire had spread over de Batz's face as he skirted the open-air camp. Let them toil, let them groan, let them starve. The more these clouts suffer, the more brutal the heel that grinds them down, the sooner will the Emperor's money accomplish its work, the sooner will these wretches be clamouring for the monarchy, which would mean a rich reward in de Batz's pockets. To him everything now was for the best. The tyranny, the brutality, the massacres. He gloated in the Holocaust with as much satisfaction as did the most bloodthirsty Jacobin in the Convention. He would with his own hands have wielded the guillotine that worked too slowly for his ends. Let that end justify the means, was his motto. 
What matter if the future King of France walked up to his throne over steps made of headless corpses, and rendered slippery with the blood of martyrs? The ground beneath de Batz's feet was hard and white with the frost. Overhead the pale wintry moon looked down serene and placid on this giant city wallowing in an ocean of misery. There had been but little snow as yet this year, and the cold was intense. On his right now the cimetière des Esses. Innocence lay peaceful and still beneath the wan light of the moon. A thin covering of snow lay evenly alike on grass mounds and smooth stones. Here and there a broken cross with chipped arms still held pathetically outstretched, as if in a final appeal for human love, bore mute testimony to senseless excesses and spiteful desire for destruction. But here within the precincts of the dwelling of the Eternal Master a solemn silence reigned. Only the cold north wind shook the branches of the yew, causing them to send forth a melancholy sigh into the night, and to shed a shower of tiny crystals of snow like the frozen tears of the dead. And round the precincts of the lonely graveyard, and down narrow streets or open places, the night watchmen went their rounds, lantern in hand, and every five minutes their monotonous call rang clearly out in the night. Sleep, citizens! Everything is quiet and at peace! We may take it that de Batz did not philosophize overmuch on what went on around him. He had walked swiftly up the Rue Saint-Martin, then turning sharply to his right, he found himself beneath the tall, frowning walls of the temple prison, the grim guardian of so many secrets, such terrible despair, such unspeakable tragedies. Here, too, as in the Place de la Révolution, an intermittent roll of muffled drums proclaimed the ever-watchful presence of the National Guard. But with that exception, not a sound stirred round the grim and stately edifice. There were no cries, no calls, no appeals around its walls. All the crying and wailing were shut in by the massive stone that told no tales. Dim and flickering lights shone behind several of the small windows in the façade of the huge labyrinthine building. Without any hesitation, de Batz turned down the Rue du Temple, and soon found himself in front of the main gates which gave on the courtyard beyond. The sentinel challenged him, but he had the password, and explained that he desired to have speech with Citizen Heron. With a surly gesture the guard pointed to the heavy bell-pull up against the gate, and de Batz pulled it with all his might. The long clang of the brazen bell echoed and re-echoed round the solid stone walls. Anon a tiny Judas in the gate was cautiously pushed open, and a peremptory voice once again challenged the midnight intruder. De Batz, more peremptorily this time, asked for Citizen Heron, with whom he had immediate and important business, and a glimmer of a piece of silver which he held up close to the Judas secured him the necessary admittance. The massive gates slowly swung open on their creaking hinges, and as de Batz passed beneath the archway they closed again behind him. The concierge's lodge was immediately on his left. Again he was challenged, and again he gave the password, but his face was apparently known here, for no serious hindrance to proceed was put in his way. A man, whose wide, lean frame was but ill-covered by a threadbare coat and ragged breeches, and with soleless shoes on his feet, was told off to direct the citoyen to Citizen Heron's rooms. The man walked slowly along with bent knees and arched spine, and shuffled his feet as he walked. The bunch of keys which he carried rattled ominously in his long, grimy hands. The passages were badly lighted, and he also carried a lantern to guide himself on the way. Closely followed by de Batz, he soon turned into the central corridor, which is open to the sky above, and was spectrally alight now, with flagstones and walls gleaming beneath the silvery sheen of the moon, and throwing back the fantastic elongated shadows of the two men as they walked. 
On the left, heavily barred windows gave on the corridor, as did, here and there, the massive oaken doors, with their gigantic hinges and bolts, on the steps of which squatted groups of soldiers, wrapped in their cloaks, with wild, suspicious eyes beneath their capotes, peering at the midnight visitor as he passed. There was no thought of silence here. The very walls seemed alive with sounds, groans and tears, loud wails and murmured prayers. They exuded from the stones and trembled on the frost-laden air. Occasionally at one of the windows a pair of white hands would appear, grasping the heavy iron bar, trying to shake it in its socket, and mayhap above the hands the dim vision of a haggard face, a man's or a woman's, trying to get a glimpse of the outside world, a final look at the sky before the last journey to the place of death to-morrow. Then one of the soldiers, with a loud, angry oath, would struggle to his feet, and with the butt-end of his gun strike at the thin, wan fingers, till their hold on the iron bar relaxed and the pallid face beyond would sink back into the darkness with a desperate cry of pain. A quick, impatient sigh escaped Abatz's lips. He had skirted the wide courtyard in the wake of his guide, and from where he was he could see the great central tower with its tiny windows lighted from within, the grim walls behind which the descendant of the world's conquerors, the bearer of the proudest name in Europe, and wearer of its most ancient crown, had spent the last days of his brilliant life in abject shame, sorrow, and degradation. The memory had swiftly surged up before him of that night, when he all but rescued King Louis and his family from this same miserable prison. The guard had been bribed, the keeper corrupted, everything had been prepared, save the reckoning with the one irresponsible factor—chance. He had failed then, and had tried again, and again had failed. A fortune had been his reward if he had succeeded. He had failed but even now, when his footsteps echoed along the flagged courtyard, over which an unfortunate king and queen had walked on their way to their last ignominious calvary, he hugged himself with the satisfying thought that where he had failed, at least no one else had succeeded. Whether that meddlesome English adventurer, who called himself the Scarlet Pimpernel, had planned the rescue of King Louis or of Queen Marie Antoinette at any time or not, that he did not know but on one point at least he was more than ever determined, and that was that no power on earth should snatch from him the golden prize offered by Austria for the rescue of the little Dauphin. "'I would sooner see the child perish if I cannot save him myself,' was the burning thought in this man's tortuous brain. "'And let that accursed Englishman look to himself and to his damned confederates,' he added, muttering a fierce oath beneath his breath. A winding narrow stone stair another length or two of corridor, and his guide's shuffling footsteps paused beside a low, iron-studded door let into the solid stone. De Batz dismissed his ill-clothed guide, and pulled the iron bell-handle which hung beside the door. The bell gave forth a dull and broken clang, which seemed like an echo of the wails of sorrow that peopled the huge building with their weird and monotonous sounds. De Batz, a thoroughly unimaginative person, waited patiently beside the door, until it was opened from within, and he was confronted by a tall, stooping figure, wearing a greasy coat of snuff-brown cloth, and holding high above his head a lantern that threw its feeble light on de Batz's jovial face and form. "'It is even I, Citizen Heron,' he said, breaking in swiftly on the other's ejaculation of astonishment, which threatened to send his name echoing the whole length of corridors and passages, until round every corner of the labyrinthine house of sorrow the murmur would be borne on the wings of the cold night breeze. Citizen Heron is in parley with Cidavant Baron de Batz, a fact which would have been equally unpleasant for both these worthies.' "'Enter,' said Heron curtly. 
He banged the heavy door to behind his visitor, and de Batz, who seemed to know his way about the place, walked straight across the narrow landing to where a smaller door stood invitingly open. He stepped boldly in, the while Citizen Heron put the lantern down on the floor of the couloir, and then followed his nocturnal visitor into the room. End of chapter 5